Good morning. It's always good to be back here at CBC. It's, um, it feels like I come home and get to visit um, old friends. Um, and for that, I owe a thanks uh, to Dave because he was the one who first invited me here many years ago. And I thought, oh, it will just be you know, a one-time speaking thing. And now about eight or so years later and dozens of opportunities to be with you. Um, I'm so grateful for you. And I owe you a great deal of thanks, Dave, for the invitation to be here. And then um, for <clears throat> the continued invitations that have come over time. Um, so uh, in his prayer, Dave mentioned the campus access issue. And I thought I'd give you a quick update as a way of also introducing us to the sermon today. Uh, as you may know, we, InterVarsity was de-recognized on 23 of the Cal State campuses. We have chapters at 19 of those. It's the largest public university system in the country with 450,000 students um, on those campuses. Um, so this is a, a huge issue uh, for InterVarsity and for campus ministries. Um, midway through the week, I was forwarded an email that was being sent around by the secular what is it, the Secular uh, Alliance, where a student seeing what had happened at Cal State said he was going to sue within the University of California system to get them to do the same thing that Cal State was doing. And so since my job um, beyond supervising the Northeast is to respond to these campus access situations, things got busy this week. I walked into the office Monday thinking all I had to do was host a three-day meeting with my team. And within the first three hours, I had phone calls um, from Two, one TV network, one radio network, and one very uh, important Christian radio station in Chicago all asking for interviews. And before the week was over, it was two TV networks, two radio syndicates, two radio stations, and two newspapers that occupied my time as I was responding um, to all of the interviews. It was a little horrifying to then see myself spread around Facebook by all my friends as they would take <laughs> clips from these things. And... Uh, for university, this is a period of chaos. Campus ministry is going forward on those campuses. Um, I have fantastic stories of how students are continuing to move forward in witness, um, how they're continuing to be present on those campuses, even though the universities don't want them there. But um, we're caught in um, an unpredictable situation where the very assumptions that we've made about ministry are beginning to change rapidly around us. For 70 years, universities have largely welcomed us. For 70 years, we've had access to rooms, access to student activities fairs. And on increasing numbers of campuses, all of that's getting taken away. And um, not only is it being taken away, but the outrage that used to accompany this kind of thing, which would help pressure universities to change their minds, is beginning to shift. And so you're beginning to see more and more articles and blog posts and um, radio spots which say, oh, university is just wrong at requiring its student leaders to be Christians first. Anybody should be able to lead these groups. And it's discriminatory for InterVarsity to do this. They're right in being kicked off campus. And so the environment's changing, and I suspect all of us have been in similar circumstances. Um, not with, obviously, university recognition issues, but you've been in places in your life where all of a sudden it feels like the floor is just beginning to give way. All of the assumptions about what was true about life up until that point have begun to change. Um, or you've been in a situation where the relationships around you have begun to shift and you don't know why and you don't know what's going on, but suddenly you realize the network of people who were there for you no longer seem to be there. Or for some of us, it's our bodies. They've just begun to stop doing what we've counted on them to do. And what we used to be able to rely on, used to be able to trust that we could accomplish, 
all of a sudden becomes a stretch for us. I, I noticed it when, actually, I was here at this church. I was preaching, and I know where to hold my Bible and my notes. This was just about a year and a half ago. And I pulled up the Bible, and I thought, oh, that's now too close. <laughs> and I, I was so confused while I was preaching, like, where's the focal point? But right, right, there are times that all of a sudden, without warning, it changes. It's into this situation, I think, that this text is particularly useful. So let me pray for us as we approach the word of God, that we may hear him clearly and then respond with faith. You are the Lord who speaks. Uh, you speak preeminently in scripture, but um, most ultimately in the person of your son. And so, Lord, um, allow us to hear your voice in the beauty of the day around us that you've made, in the words of the scriptures that you entrusted to us, and then ultimately in the person of Jesus, who is the living word. May we hear, may we respond, and uh, may we, in faith we obey and rejoice. So that you would receive the glory and honor that you are due, so that Jesus Christ's name would be praised and the Holy Spirit would have his way among us. To you be the honor and glory forever, Lord. Amen. But the context of this passage, um, uh, the immediate context, uh, was what Dick preached on last week. Jesus has um, just had this interesting um, engagement with people where his Family had come to take him away. And uh, Jesus goes, well, who is my family? And rather than identifying with his biological family, he says, my family are the people who do the will of God. And as Dick pointed out last week, he, he radically changes the definition of both who your family, who is the most intense, important set of relationships that you have as the people who share the spiritual DNA that's slowly propagating itself uh, through your life. And he describes the church, this new community, this new Israel, not as um, people who happen to gather um, around worship that they enjoy or relationships that please them, but instead who are mobilized to accomplish those things that God has called them to do. And there's a narrowing of focus throughout the book of Luke as you do that, from the great crowds that accompanied Jesus at the first part of Luke to this narrower portion where he's now directly addressing the disciples. And he says, if you follow the will of God, then you are family to me. And this new family will be the nucleus, Jesus will begin to suggest over time, which will begin to change the world as the kingdom begins to expand through it. And as he's narrowed down this family and the focus is on the disciples, the 12 men and that group of women who follow Jesus and learn from him and proclaim him, as they become the new community of God, Jesus realizes that he needs to do two things with them, one of which is he needs to begin to deploy them in mission and help them understand what that's going to be like. And secondly, he needs to shape their understanding of who he is, not just as the great teacher that they encountered earlier, the one who does these great miracles that advance the kingdom, but he actually makes himself the focus of their worship and of their faith. You have this story that's very familiar, right? If, if you've ever had to teach a Sunday school or if you've ever endured um, church Sunday school, multiple times you'll have hit the story because it's fantastic. It's dramatic. There's action. There's danger and there's tension. Jesus calls his disciples to cross the lake. They get in the boat and then he goes to sleep while they work, which is appropriate. He's the teacher and they know how to row and he's a carpenter. So you probably shouldn't give him the oar anyways. So as he's sleeping, this tremendous storm appears. And this is pretty typical, evidently, for the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is quite low. It's about um, 680, 700 feet below sea level. And on the eastern side, well, it's kind of surrounded by hills, but on the eastern side, there are mountains um, that go up about 1,000 feet. 
and then about 30 miles away of Mount Hermon, which is about 9,200 feet. And so cold air will build up there, sweep down into the hot air that's in the Bowl of Lake Galley. And then when hot air and cold air meet, you have uh, tremendous um, weather disturbances. And so suddenly cold air strikes, the lake goes crazy, and the boat begins to be swamped. And the disciples, including whom are some veteran fishermen of that lake, panic. They freak out. They, they're scared. They are convinced they're going to go down. And so they wake Jesus up, and they shout at him, Master, we are going to drown. Now, the biggest question you should be taking from this text is, how did Jesus sleep through all of that? And there's no, no good, I don't have an answer to that one. But, because um, that's what I keep thinking. If, they're, if the veteran fishermen are scared because it's so violent, how do you sleep through? I, anyways, um, and Jesus gets up. And he rebukes the storm, and suddenly the storm's calm, uh, the, the, the sea calms. And then he turns to the disciples and he says, so where is your faith? And then they go back and they marvel with fear, who is this person that we're on this boat with, who at his words, the storms themselves calm, right? Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. Where is your faith? Now, Honestly, this seems like an unfair question, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus led them to the boat to cross at this time. If they're in danger, he's the one who got them there. The boat really was swamping. They thought they were going to go down. This is not an imaginary danger. Maybe someday we could be in a bad... Their boat was sinking. It was a real danger. The veteran sailors and fishermen were really panicking. Even the tax collector might have been, I'm scared, but if... If Peter, James, and John are scared, I'm terrified now, right? There was real danger by the people who understood what danger was like. And Jesus was sleeping, and he was unhelpful while they were going down. This is an actual dangerous, significant situation in which Jesus doesn't seem to be doing anything. So to be asked then by Jesus later, so where was your faith, may feel a little unfair. And I think it feels unfair to those of us when we feel like we've been posed with that question too sometimes, doesn't it? Where is your faith? That can still feel like an unfair question, whether it comes from God or from somebody in the church or in a book that you might read. Some of us do actually face life-threatening situations. Our bodies may be failing, and we're feeling the closeness of having to decide how not will we live, but how will we die. It may not be a physical issue, but many of us have experienced those emotion-killing, soul-killing moments of life where the world just seems desolate. Our hearts are numb, and you can't imagine going forward. If not that we've experienced it, um, we've been given the privilege and also the nearly unbearable burden of walking along somebody that we love. Because it would be one thing to bear that ourselves, but to watch somebody that you love bear it and realize there's nothing that you can do um, may be even more terrifying and troubling. We face these real-life situations. Sometimes we face real silence from God. I suspect there's not a person here who hasn't followed Jesus for any length of time 
where you haven't encountered a moment where you've wanted to pray and it really does feel like you're just talking inside your head. The world, words drop from your lips onto the floor and puddle there. That the worship songs do nothing to warm our hearts, but actually may actually irritate us. And the encouragement that people want to give you feels so foreign to your own experience that as they offer you words of hope or encouragement, um, rather than closing the gap, you just feel like, well, if you can even say that, you and I aren't even on the same planet right now. Um, unless we think, oh, that's only for those of us who, with weak faith, I think right, one of the most um, relevatory pieces about Mother Teresa's biography that came out several years ago was her sense that after um, an ecstatic, rapturous um, communion with Jesus in the early part of her years of faith, um, for decades, she felt like she just encountered the silence of God. And she prayed without any deep experience of his presence, of his comfort, or of his hope. Sometimes God does seem to be asleep. And often this passage is taught in terms of, you know, Jesus can still the storms of your life. Uh, but the reality is, if we're honest, he doesn't always still all the storms. For some of us, the storms just keep going on. Um, C.S. Lewis captured some of that experience after the death of his wife, Joy David, um, Davidman, Davidson, sorry, <laughs> um, in his book, uh, A Grief Observed, which is one of my favorite uh, little books describing the passage of grief, but um, he asked the question, so meanwhile, where is God when you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him? If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain. What do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? It seems almost sacrilegious to write that, but I suspect Many of us in this room would say, I've been there. I know what that feels like. Where is your faith can feel a little unfair. And what compounds it is sometimes it's not just that you are in a life-threatening situation or that Jesus seems silent when you need him, but he's the one who brought you there. I mean, it'd be one thing if you felt like it was out of his control, but he invited the disciples onto the boat at that time, and he's the one who brought us to that place and in the place that he brought us to. Everything seems to be going wrong, and we can't seem to find him. But Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. Where is your faith? What's interesting about that question, where is your faith, is obviously it's a question about quantity at one level, right? Where is your faith? Because it's nowhere to be found. It's non-existent. Um, but, and I think this may be some of the skill of the English translator, it's a question also of location. Where is your faith located? Jesus seems to be asking. And the way the passage is constructed, everything draws your attention to the person of Jesus. He's the actor in this situation. He's the one, it says in verse 22, who call, says to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake. So they get into a boat and sail out. He is the one 
to whom the disciples turn when everything is about to go wrong. He's the one who has the power to calm the winds and the waves, and he's the one who poses the hard questions, and he is the one about whom they are amazed. The entire passage redefines, is the focal point is Jesus, and what's interesting about what Jesus is doing in this moment is that he's redefining faith around him, around himself and his presence. And the way that you can tell is in part by the way the disciples respond. The disciples didn't respond with the question, how did he calm the storm? What turns of phrases did he use in his prayer or in his invocation of the storm? Or what gestures of his hands seemed to have control over the winds and waves? The question was not a how question, right? The question why was it, why didn't he still the storm earlier before we got afraid? Right? If he did it then, he could have done it 20 minutes before, and we would have had a calm passage across the sea. It's not a how, and it's not a why question. The question is a who question. Who is this? They're not concerned with his reasoning, nor in how he accomplishes it. They're concerned with who is the person that is in the boat with them. Because what Jesus is doing is he's redefining faith, not around the circumstances that he's in or some vague notion about this God that you follow to become part of my family as in the last story. He's redefining faith around who he is and where he's at, right? Just as he redefined family around those who do the will of God, he's redefining faith around himself because he's continually drawing the disciples closer and closer to um, a focal point about who he is and soon what he's going to command them to do. Who is this is the critical question that the disciples have to wrestle with, that we have to wrestle with, and I think um, everybody in the world has to wrestle with. Jesus rebukes their faith when they panic because they should know, regardless of the severity of the storm, that they are safe if he's there. Where is your faith? He asked them. Is it in the structural integrity of the boat? Is it in your sailing skill? Because you've experienced things like this before? Is it in some vague presence about what you hope God will do? Or is your faith centered on the person who is in the boat with you right now? Jesus is the one who rebukes the storm and it responds. Right? And that word rebuke is often um, the same word that you've seen as we've been walking through Luke about how Jesus um, rebukes the evil spirits and they depart. But it doesn't necessarily mean that um, there was a demonic activity that drove um, this great storm. Um, but Jesus seems to be restraining, to be ending those life-destroying, life-threatening forces, um, which are part of the effects of the fall as all of creation gets tipped a little on its access, so that creation is no longer the safe, nurturing place that human beings were given to steward, to maintain, and to develop, but now becomes antagonistic toward us, where, um, right, uh, where we toil um, with blood, sweat, and tears. In other stories that follow, and you look at them later, I think you see the healing of a demoniac as the spiritual forces are being brought under control. You see a woman with a hemorrhage where um, the social forces that destroy people and their souls begin to be brought under control. Then finally, um, a young child is brought back from death because death is the final enemy, and that too is brought under control. Right? 
where is your faith? And Jesus says, I'm the one who is doing all these things. And Luke is beginning to paint this picture of this person who is the center of our faith has this ability to write everything that is disordered in the world. In fact, um, he's doing what God alone seems to do. And um, frequently, particularly in the Psalms, you have stories about God stilling uh, the sea in order to bring calm. Um, I was looking at Psalm 107, beginning in verse 23, and I, I want to read a section of it to give you a sense that this is the theological imaginative background that the disciples have. So when they see Jesus do that, this is the kind of passage that they would have prayed frequently and would have come to mind. In Psalm 107, beginning in verse um, 23, it says, Others went out to the, on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up in a tempest, sorry, he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired heaven, haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. Let, him exalt, let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. Right? If you'd prayed that monthly for the entirety of your life, and then all of a sudden you were in a place where God brought you out of the ocean and you felt like you were thrown up into the heavens and dashed down to the deeps as these great waves happen and you cry out, Master, don't you care that we're drowning? And suddenly he speaks a word and everything is still and you drift quietly to harbor. There's good reason to ask, who is this man? And perhaps an answer to, where is your faith? He's the one who rebukes the storm, and it responds equally importantly. He's the one who responds to their pleas for help. Because it's one thing to worship a God who you think can still the storm. It's another thing to have confidence that he actually listens to you and could choose to act and desires to be present with you. An all-powerful God who is emotionally distant is no help at all. But knowing that this is a God whose posture toward us is love, who's committed to us in scripture, that he will never forsake us. He will never leave us when we know that he will complete the good work he began and present us perfect in the day of Christ Jesus. So that one day when God looks at us, he will say, the resemblance between you and my perfect son is uncanny. And if you know he is the power and he is the willingness, then you actually live very differently. You answer the question, where is your faith very differently? I, I was, this brought to mind, um, if he's the one in the boat, then you have a very different experience of stress and world-changing difficulty. Um, the Heidelberg Catechism is um, the catechism that was helped, uh, developed in Germany to try to draw together very strange of the Reformation. And the very first question I think is telling. Um, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is this, that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil. 
but he protects me so well that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, and he makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live with him. Right? Rachel had precisely the right theological impulse in mind when during the worship songs this morning, she caused us to reflect on the goodness of God in salvation uh, and in, in the world because it's, that's the framework around which you understand who, where is your faith now. It's in this person. Jesus rebukes their faith, lack of faith, where is your faith, because their faith should be centered with him, and he is present in the boat with them. He's present because he promised he would never uh, forsake us or leave us. And even when we don't perceive his closeness, he is there. Right? The Psalms remind us continually there is nowhere in the universe we could flee that we'd be away from his presence. There's no place so far that he's unwilling to go to travel to us there. That's why Luke 15, right, with its parable of the searching um, shepherd and the searching woman and the searching father have been so powerful and so um, are repeated so frequently in the ways that we teach children and that we teach adults. It's part of the great theme of scripture as it reflects on what God is doing. I just finished reading through the book of Ezekiel in my quiet times. And Ezekiel is just a depressing book of God actually saying, I will withdraw my favor and my blessing on you. And you think, how many more pages can you go describing the destruction you, you have intended for your people? I mean, really, one paragraph would have done it. And I mean, and it's a long book of scripture, so it's you know, 20, 30, 40 chapters of this over and over again. It's just, it gets grinding. But at the end, when God says, I will restore the people of Israel to their home, I will restore my presence to the temple, the last lines of that book are the great promise, the name of that city shall be, God is here. Because the blessing is not the return to the land or the restoration of the temple. The presence and the promise is God will be here. And that same picture is picked up in Revelation 21, right? When John says, look, at the very end, I saw this city and it doesn't need a sun or a moon because the lamb and the one who sits on the throne are there and they're the ones who provide the light. And he will wipe away every tear from every eye. He will um, give drink to the thirsty. He will give food for the hungry. He will protect them from... Um, the desperate attempts of the sun. And God says, I will make my presence with my people. Scripture starts that way with God's presence and it ends that way with God's presence. And that anchors us, even when we don't know. I read um, in a book just two weeks ago, um, Many of you know, will know the name Elizabeth Elliot. Um, she was part of an early missionary group that went to Latin America. Her husband and several other men were killed. Um, she continued ministry there, returned to the United States, married um, a professor from Gordon-Conwell who also died of cancer. And as she was reeling with, this is the second death I've experienced in my life, the question that she came to was, what's still true when everything else um, is uncertain? And she actually went back to the Apostles' Creed and said, everything there I know is still true, when nothing else about my life still seems true. And it was that confidence about who God is, right? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And Jesus Christ is only said, right? It anchors you. I think what's interesting is Jesus promised he would never uh, 
leave or forsake us. And one of the tangible ways that we experience that is not just in the inner consolation of his presence, but in the physical presence of his people as we gather here on a Sunday. Now, let's be clear. Um, the church is notable for its failings. We don't live the kind of community that we desire to as much as we try. Um, we hurt one another nearly as often as we help one another. But the reality is the body of Christ is the tangible reminder and presence of Jesus Christ to us in these kind of situations. And I suspect for almost all of us, at those unexpected moments, you can each name a time where the body of Christ manifested itself in such a way that it left you with absolute certainty that God was there. In the unexpected word of grace that you've received in a practical offer of help when you needed it, sometimes just to be at a place where you can show up Sunday after Sunday, happy or sad, worshipful or despairing, and realize this group of people will stand there with you and worship with you. And when you cannot pray, they will pray. And when the words feel like sawdust in your mouth, they're singing it with truth, and you think, I don't feel it, but I'm grateful to be among a people who know it to be true. And their faith carries you a little bit further. This happened to me this morning. Um, as Dave came up to pray and very graciously prayed for me, the beginning of his prayer, I came out of Psalm 131, um, the entire image of God holding us uh, to his chest, like a, and then we rest comfortably and filled with trust like a weaned child at the breast of his mother, right? A weaned child because not a child who's desperate to be fed, but just a child who enjoys being in the presence of the parent and isn't struggling and isn't fussing, but is just trusting because they've received nutrients. Um, food there before, and everything will be provided. That was the passage that formed the whole of my sabbatical reflection before I moved to New York, New Jersey. It's the passage I come back to time after time when I get caught up in things that are too great for me, which is the second half of that passage. Like campus access, God draws me back and says, will you rest at my bosom? Like a wean child at the breast of his mother. You have nothing to fear. This is the safest place on earth. Have I not provided for you in the past? I will provide for you in the future. So don't get caught up in things too great for yourself, Greg. Trust in me. Dave didn't know that that was a passage I had been reflecting on for a, over a decade. But it very much felt like through the physical presence of God's people, God was reminding me in this very crazy week for me where my life felt out of control. Wailing child. Here is your rest and your hope. Right? It's those small things that continue to drive us to his presence, that offer us hope. Where is your faith? It's in God's presence in the boat with us. Um, it's that children's chorus that many of us sang at some VBS or some other camp, right? Um, with Christ in the vessel, I can smile at the storm, smile at the storm, smile at the storm. With Christ in the vessel, I can smile at the storm as we go sailing home. The song is not, with Christ in the vessel, he will calm the storm, he will calm the storm, he will calm the storm, because the storms exist. They continue. But if he is in the boat with us, we have nothing to fear. Jesus rebukes their lack of faith because it should anchor them. And I think when we have that anchoring, we approach the kind of chaos, not with confidence that the storm will be stilled, because we can't promise that, nor that the mission that God calls us to is safe, because he, ha he has not promised that. But if he's in the boat with us, it's not going to go down. It's his boat, his mission, his journey, and we are his people. 
And even if the boat were to physically go down, we are safe. We are in the presence of the safest person in the world. Um, I've been reflecting uh, the, on this a lot because uh, I think I mentioned last time I was here, the former president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, uh, Steve Hayner, was diagnosed with um, aggressive, severe cancer right around Easter. Um, he was in perfect health, began to experience stomach pains. Two weeks later, they did a CAT scan and found um, uh, pancreatic cancer that had metastasized uh, to his liver and other places. Um, he's publicly written, I suspect my timeline is, uh, should be measured in weeks and months. And, um, through CaringBridge, which many of us who have friends who've been ill are familiar with, he's, he and his wife and family have been posting how they're doing. And what struck me as he's written about his experience going through a significant storm where he recognizes his boat will go down, saving a miracle, and his family is experiencing a storm beyond anything they can imagine because he is only in, his, I think, 64, 66, was running four times a week, right, in great health until suddenly everything started to go wrong. Um, I wanted to read you a little bit of what he's been reflecting on because I think it reflects, if you know the presence of the body of, of Christ, um, how you approach these kind of crises. He writes, the cancer continues to have the upper hand. What now seems clear from a purely physical perspective is that in all probability, the remainder of my life on earth is now to be counted in weeks and months. Um, and then he began to talk about people who've been praying for him. Um, particularly people praying for a miracle of healing. He says, many are praying for one of God's big miracles. Uh, we, we are as well. But it is not how God answers prayer that determines our response to God. God is committed to my ultimate healing, but being cured of my cancer may or may not be part of that healing work. One person told me how disturbing it is to her to watch so many thousands of prayers on my behalf, and yet, so far, to see a minimal uh, physical evidence of healing. Does God really heal? Are the prayers of the righteous effective? Does God listen to the desires of our heart? Does the amount of prayer have any special impact? Honestly, while I understand the importance and logic of questions like this, and many others, most of these questions are not the ones that are important to me. I truly don't know what God has planned. None of us really know what the physical symptoms of my cancer will be over time. I could receive healing through whatever means, or I could continue to deteriorate. But life is about a lot more than physical health. It is measured by a lot more than medical tests and vital signs. More important than the particular aspect of God's work with us in the physical, social, psychological, spiritual, and mental realms of life is God's overall presence with us, nourishing, equipping, transforming, empowering, and sustaining us for whatever might be God's call to my life today. Today, my call might be to learn something new about rest. Today, my call might be to learn something new about patience, endurance, and the identification with those who suffer. Today, my call might be to encourage another person in some very tangible way. Today, my call might be to mull through a new insight about God's truth or character. The prayers and support of people along the way are also about God's call to each of them and me today. As people pray, we are all changed, and we are all called to focus in a new way. We are all changed as individuals and as a community. Yes, I'm really eager to know what is happening in my body to this cancer. I'm hopeful that the report about my tumor will be a good one, and it might portend a more physically healthy future. But whatever we find out over the next days, I am more eager that it would help me be more attentive, more grateful, more loving, more joyful, and more gracious.
challenge of this passage is that Jesus led them to that place. And if what Dick said last week is true, he is leading us as a community that's defined around obeying the will of God to a mission and to a particular place. And God does not promise that the place he leads us to will be safe, either physically, emotionally, or spiritually. Right? You, for those of you who sent children off to college, you know that's true. Right? There's no promise that your child will be safe in those places, physically, emotionally, or spiritually. All of us know, just walking, wake, getting out of bed in the morning is no longer especially safe. But God is there. If he called us to the mission, he promises he will accompany, accompany us on the mission. If he sends us out of the mission, he's promised he has already gone ahead of us to prepare the way because it's his Holy Spirit that invites us forward and his Holy Spirit that's at work in that place, right? He has promised us that he will never leave us, forsake us. That's the promise that accompanies the call to mission, not that you will be safe. Where is your faith? Our faith is in the one who calls us, who is with us, and who will renew all of creation until one day his voice will ring out, it is finished. I have made all things new. And it's around him that we anchor our faith. Whether he stills the storm or not is actually quite irrelevant to what the disciples are meant to experience. What they're meant to experience is storm or not, with the presence of God in this boat, I shall not be afraid. So brothers and sisters, as you pursue the mission that God has called you to, as you deploy your children into schools and communities and neighborhoods, as you head off into workplaces, God does not promise safe. And all of us have probably already experienced it's not always safe. He has promised he will go with us. And for us, that's enough. Because our answer to the question, where is your faith? The only proper answer is, it's in you, the one who accompanies us. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, turn our eyes to you so that in your love we can have confidence, in your power and majesty we can know security. And whether you choose to still the storm or just lead us through it, turn our eyes to you. We long to see Jesus. Amen.